Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 20 of the Fiduciary You podcast. I've actually been away for the past few weeks in Hawaii with the fam and uh, excited to be back, re-energized and ready to get on with the show. Uh, I've got some really great episodes coming up over the next couple of weeks that you won't want to miss. Before I introduce today's guest, though, I wanted to ask a favor. Would you be willing to go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review for the show? It's one of the best ways for other listeners to find the show, and it would be uh, really appreciated from my perspective. So let me tell you about who's on the show today. Her name is Liz Davidson. She's the founder and CEO of Financial Finesse, whose mission is to deliver life-changing financial guidance to those who need it most. I'm really excited about this episode. We had a great conversation. She's a really neat lady. Financial Finesse provides personalized financial coaching and workplace financial wellness. She's actually the true OG of the financial wellness movement who founded the nation's first unbiased workplace financial wellness company in 1999. On today's episode, Liz and I cover the origins of the company, her large team of personal financial coaches that are all CFPs with a minimum of 10 years experience and their eight-step recruiting process, the benefit of providing coaching and education instead of advice and how this is complementary to most advisors, their financial wellness think tank, which provides really awesome uh, research and resources about all things happening in the financial wellness movement, and their new tech platform called AMI, which stands for Artificial Intelligence Motivating Employees Everywhere. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast with Liz Davidson. Liz Davidson, thank you so much for being a guest on the Fiduciary You podcast. Thank you for having me. When I think about you and I think about financial finesse, which I think you started in 1919, I feel like, or 1999. No, 99. <laughs> 1999. Uh, you got a lot of longevity, Liz. But I think about you as kind of being the OG in financial wellness. In fact, I think perhaps you might have even coined the, the term, I think, I, when I was kind of researching and preparing. One, is that an urban legend or is that true? And Talk to me a little bit about kind of the origin story of financial finesse. And, and you know, you've been at this almost 22 years and, you know, you talked about financial wellness when it, when it wasn't cool to talk about. How did you get started and, and how did you get the idea? Yeah, so I do believe we coined the term. What I will say is, you know, it wasn't long thereafter that, you know, I think there's kind of this collective thinking that goes on as a result of, you know, events in the world and, and, you know, what industry experts are seeing as trends. And so it very quickly proliferated. We maybe, you know, we're using it for a year or so before it really <laughs> kind of took off. And now we're in a situation where the definition of it, what does this mean for an individual? And what does this mean for a company or a retirement plan and their participants is incredibly important because it's become, you know, too broadly used. And we can talk about that later. But 
In terms of, of how I started, I, you know, I ran an investment management company <laughs> very, very young. I would not have the confidence to do so now, but it was right after business school. I kind of figured out that I needed to be an entrepreneur. I grew up in investment banking and, you know, just having those two years of business school to, to really think about what did I want to do next? Started an investment management company, value-based, you know, firm in a dot-com era, which was interesting. <laughs> we were a nice hedge for our investors, you know, a, a kind of counter to how they were investing, which brings me to the origin story. We had so many investors, and these are accredited investors, so high net worth individuals that were really, really incredibly bright, and in some cases, even incredibly knowledgeable. I mean, one was a a professor of finance at an esteemed business school, but you know the knowledgeable ones could not help that emotional. Like I have to really get on this dot com train, right? And you know maybe I teach efficient market theory and diversification, but but you know I can't resist, right? And then you have the ones that were entrepreneurs or you know doctors or attorneys that became very successful in their field, but just, you know, didn't understand even the basics of investing. And then on top of that, you had the dynamic when they were there with their spouses, where they were making, you know, in this case, the gentleman making almost all the decisions. And, you know, I would try to draw in the the wife and, and say, well, what do you think? And it's like, well, he takes care of this. He knows what he's doing, you know, and it, so all of these dynamics of just seeing there was a need for, you know, education and guidance for for this market, and especially, you know, back then really feeling that women were, <laughs> we have more expenses in our lifetime when we live longer yet, you know, and again, this is 22 years ago, we weren't nearly as, you know, I think empowered about our finances as we are today. Putting all this together, I was like, this, there needs to be someone for the, you know, this is top 1%. What about the 99% of people who, if there is, you know, if they invest wrong or, you know, they overinvest in equities or they just don't manage their finances well, they can end up taking a big hit that may take years to recover from and change the tra- trajectory of their lives. You know, my clients, you know, could sell the yacht kind of thing. So I was like, okay, how do we, what can be done about this? And I researched, I started doing workshops just organically. They were focused on women back then and fell in love with it and realized that I could not be running an investment fund and doing these unbiased workshops for non-accredited investors, both from a, hey, it's not really very good marketing. (laughs) And from a perspective of even the perception of conflict of interest is an issue. So I got completely out of that business in 99 and officially started Financial Finesse. Very quickly, we realized the best possible strategy was B2B. And that while women, you know, what were really our target audience in the beginning, you know, you can reach women through the workforce and and the studies bear this out, you know, that we disproportionately reach women because if you market the services as is really helping them build the, the life they want for themselves and their family, 
it is, you know, very appealing to have, you know, ongoing coaching from that perspective. So that was 99. Today, we are the largest independent provider of workplace financial wellness programs as a standalone employee benefit. We don't do anything else. We don't sell financial products, services, securities. We don't even offer advice. It's guidance and coaching delivered digitally as well as phone-based, group webcasts, both large and small. You know, the, the origin was interestingly, and you know, large companies gravitated towards this first. So, you know, we have about 46 very large clients that use us to really build custom programs for their employees, you know, just depending on their needs. And then about five years ago, maybe a a little more, we launched an enterprise division to work through intermediaries, record keepers, retirement plan consultants, benefits brokers, to take all of our best practices into a model that they can deploy in a highly scalable way. I hate the word scalable because it implies a a loss of personalization. Right. But, you know, what we call mass personalization. So where they can, you know, have the tools and it's now possible with technology to reach participants in a really deep way and help them with their personal goals, but reach a large number of participants. So it's both, you know, breadth and depth. And, you know, it's, it's been very successful. It really is for us where I would say we're different from most firms is it's, it's very much a mutual selection process. And we're looking for those firms that see financial wellness as part of their mission, value prop, are looking at it years ahead and feel that it's going to be a, a very big driver for, you know, acquisition of new business as well as just making the biggest possible impact. So it's kind of going deep with fewer as opposed to let's build something that, you know, every advisor can can slot in. And these relationships really do require a level of commitment to be successful that is above and beyond what I think most of the industry is ready for. I want to get into talk a little bit about the business and the business model, but just you know, as you were talking, just as an, as a question, kind of a tangent, you know, you mentioned you had this investment firm and you had a value orientation during the, you know, call it mid to late 90s, when obviously value was out of favor and, and, and growth was very much in favor, not so different than where we are right now. And then, you know, after the, the uh, which I remember very well, the, the tech bubble bursting, you know, from 2002 through about 2007 or so, you know, value did did very, very well. Do you think if value had done really well, if the role, if if the asset class kind of performance was reversed while you had your investment management firm, and let's say value was killing it, you know, and growth was lagging. And so you were kind of positioned, call it correctly, if you will, timing-wise, during the time you had that firm, do you think you would have left? I imagine being a value manager in the, you know, you know, the 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 mid to late 90s was was pretty challenging, much like it is, you know, has been the past 10 years or so. Do you think you would have stayed in the investment side of the business had your style and strategy been more in favor than out of favor, just out of curiosity? No, it's actually the opposite. I loved the challenge. I loved, 
I loved the challenge of having to get people to kind of think beyond, you know, the, the, that kind of bubble thinking and go, okay, well, you know, cause remember these are very high net worth people. So what could be a, a nice investment, you know, in our fund or independently managed accounts was a relatively small fraction of their worth. So the play was really like, you know, this is giving you some diversification. You know, we had lockup periods and all those things. And these were people that, you know, we really got to know and were very high touch and communicating. I mean, we literally were telling them anytime we bought or sold anything and why. And so they were really. I think felt part of the process. So we actually maintained our and grew our investors, but it was hard. And in the beginning, that was part of the fun of it was how do you crack this nut? Once it, it it felt like you're kind of selling the same thing over and over was where I started having broader discussions and kind of uncovering this other need because I mean, I think a lot of entrepreneurs will relate to this. We're very good at new things. (laughs) Once things hit kind of that more status quo or maintenance, we get, we get itchy. Right. And, and want to do Liz like that, like you just described me in a nutshell, Um, (laughs) you know, this kind of new, you know, and and most listeners know that I had, you know, co-founded Greenspring Advisors, which was, an RIA that we we founded in in 2004 and recently left to kind of you know we had built it to scale and and I started to get the itch to go do something new so uh you just described me in in a nutshell and 90% of the time I'm like this is awesome and 10% of the time I'm like oh my gosh what did I just do to myself <laughs> yeah i remember i mean my my mom saying you know i was ruining my life i mean i no one supported this decision <laughs> no one, not my business partner, you know, that I started the investment management company with. No one did. I mean, it was, it sounded crazy and it, it probably was crazy. It was certainly early, right? It was early to do value back then. And then it was early to do financial wellness. You're but, a good friend spotter, Liz. Good friend spotter. <laughs> yeah. I got to work on the timing a little bit, but yeah, it, it, it just there. Yeah. There is something at least I think for personalities like ours, you know, we're, we're really innovation and progress and building something new is, is what gives you that intrinsic satisfaction. So I actually think if it were really successful, I probably would have, you know, left even earlier or brought in someone who, you know, was more of that executive, right. That, you know, would grow and maintain it, but not, get that itch to build new things for the sake of building them. <laughs> Which so. is really interesting now because you've, you've, you've had financial finesse. Did you start it solo or did you have like partners or co-founders in, in starting financial finesse or did it really just start with you? I started it solo because no one really thought it was a good idea. Right. So I, I was kind of on my own with it you know, obviously ended up hiring people and so forth. But in terms of investment, it was my own money, you know, for the seed capital and then, you know, just running it very organically to grow based on, I mean, not spend what we didn't have kind of, I mean, basic financial principles, right? So, so, you know, obviously, you know, 22 years later, you look at it and you go, oh, well, how prescient, but I will tell you, we could have started the firm probably a good 
four or five years later <laughs> and not necessarily been any been any worse off you know in the very beginning i mean you you go where opportunity is right so in the very beginning we were doing you know we were um, up in san francisco doing stock option workshops for companies about to go public and the investment bank would call us and say hey these employees need to understand their stock options and so can you come in you know in the next couple of weeks and do this. And, you know, you, you do what you have to do. Right. And then post.com, there was a lot of layoff work and we just spent the first few years really working, looking at where the market was and how could our services fit and, you know, keep the lights on. And then probably about 2006, 2007 was when companies the really early adopters started to realize, hey, this is an ongoing benefit. This isn't just something we bring in when we have a change in the retirement plan that we need to communicate or a merger and we need the new employees that, you know, from the acquiring company to understand our benefits. This is something that is a day in and day out process for people. And we need to approach it that way as an organization and make it one of our benefits. And then now we, I mean, really 100% of our contracts are multi-year contracts where it really is, it's a benefit and it's typically connected to the wellness program if the company has one, often incentivized as part of overall well-being and, you know, very deeply connected with the record keeper, et cetera, to, you know, help make sure employees understand before they take loans, you know, the consequences of their decisions. Mm. So how big is the company now? How many people do you have working for you? With you? 50 plus. Okay. 50 plus. I know them all, which is good. I, I dread the day that someone's on a Zoom call. I mean, like, who are you? Is it, so, and, yeah. and is, it a, is it a distributed workforce or is everybody in one location? How, how, how is that built out? It's distributed. It always has been because... You know, our clients are all over the country and a big part of what we historically have done, obviously COVID changed this, but was in-person one-on-ones and workshops. And, you know, when you have companies that are headquartered all over, and then in addition to that, they have sites all over, right? Manufacturing sites or retail sites, you have to have a, you know, a local presence or it's at least much more advantageous cost-wise for both you and the client, and then just that connection of, this is someone local, they get it. So there, we were dispersed always. We've had headquarters is in El Segundo, California, and we have our, you know, essentially our, our back office functions, sales, marketing, product development, tech here. But all of our planners that deliver the education and, you know, financial coaching are fully employed by us, but work out of home offices around the country. Okay. And so how, just out of curiosity, so, you know, we've, we, with COVID-19 and with, you know, the rise of interaction, like you and I are on Zoom right now, right? So how have you seen the interaction with, because you employ your, your, call it your, your coaches are all CFPs, correct? All certified financial planners, 10 plus years experience. And then we hire about 2% of those that meet that, you know, that have 10 plus years and are 
our CFPs just through a, a pretty extensive eight-step recruiting process. So it's a, uh, <laughs> we're always recruiting. <laughs> yeah. The, the challenge for all of us in the industry is talent, right? And, and yep. Um, yep. And it's a change of life. They have to give up their licenses to sell yeah. securities and to get back, they would have to take their series seven, 65, you know, they, yeah. it, it really is a decision to, to leave, you know, sales and, and sales is maybe a strong word, but leave the, the traditional financial advisory industry and become a personal financial coach. Right. Right. And so how do you think COVID-19 with, you know, people working from home and remote, how do you think that's going to change, you know, employee engagement, you know, post COVID-19 when people are back in offices, do you think you'll go back to doing like the in-person workshops or do you think you do, do you think clients are going to have an appetite to do a lot more of this remote moving forward? Yes. <laughs> so both both we're starting to see things open up with the very early stages. I do believe that you know what we're starting to see is workshops being very very customized. I mean we always integrated employer benefits into the whole entire ecosystem. All of our channels, all our planners know every single benefit and, you know, are, are making that, you know, part of the discussion wherever possible, as well as answering, you know, questions employees have. But the workshops have now become, the audience is being very targeted. For example, people that are going to retire within a year and really you know, focused on that specific topic, integrating all the steps and all the, you know, employer benefits, as well as everything else they need to be kind of doing and thinking about. So it's in depth for life stages and major transitions, as opposed to, oh, we're going to do a workshop on money management skills. What we've learned is a lot of financial wellness is better delivered via coaching because it's not about knowledge, it's about behavior. And the only way to change behavior is to get people, first of all, thinking differently and having hope if they don't have hope and and releasing their fear, but then taking steps and building upon those steps and having accountability and having those wins that become, you know, a kind of a dopamine rush and, and ultimately become you know, somewhat addictive so that they become addicted to, you know, the, the financial wins, not the financial spins. Right. And I think that's one of your taglines, right? Like your, your wins or our why, is that, that how you kind of describe it? As of the production of that video. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I like that. I like it. So just really quickly with your coaches and you mentioned that that they're not providing advice what happens what how do you handle if a you know a participant or an employee you know wants to talk about the 401k it was interesting in looking at your 2020 financial wellness year in review which we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of minutes you assign like a financial wellness score to a lot of different areas so whether it's you know you know, cash flow, whether it's budgeting, whether it's debt management, whether it's college planning, the lowest scores that I saw, you know, one of the charts as I kind of perused the, the, you know, the results was actually the lowest financial wellness score across different cohorts is around investing. 
So how do you handle if an employee participant says, hey, my 401k plan, my balance, my account, you know, how should I invest this money? How do you guys handle that if you're not providing advice and coaching? Very good question. And one we get all the time. So a couple of things, you know, first and foremost, you know, now with managed accounts, with target day funds, there's more options that simplify the process. So very much looking at just our coaching, it's really understanding, you know, is the person hands-off or hands-on? 90 plus percent of people, and I'm sure you've experienced this, when you really take them through what it takes to actively manage, you know, their retirement. And, you know, especially if they have a a highly complex financial situation, like that's a full-time job, you know, almost. And, and they don't want, they don't have the interest level or the time to commit to it. So most people are hands-off. Though and we then spent it's re- trillions of dollars in the industry time trying to teach people how to be better investors and, and numerous studies have shown, I've seen it in my career is just what you said is people don't have the time, the will, or the skill to do it on their own. And they don't want to. Like so often we've outsourced all kinds of different things in our life. And most people, they want to live their life. They want to focus on other things, not paying attention to their 401k account. So being able to move to professional management and even the outcomes in the data is very clear that people who who use a professionally managed option, whether that's a target date fund or a managed account, you know, tend to have much better outcomes than people who do it themselves. Yes. Yes. And that's, yes. That's and it, this whole that day trading trend, as a as a aside, yeah. scares me to death. Right. <laughs> it's very concerning. What on so many levels, but I know that's funny. Not- though you think about you think about the. I was actually a history major in college, right? And everybody's kind of heard. If you don't know, you know, history's mistakes. You're bound to repeat them. But you know, I just think about how similar today is to 97 through 2001. And you had obviously the rise of tech and, you know, this kind of FOMO feeling that that everybody needs to kind of be investing in tech and growth, which obviously can have its place in a portfolio. But, you know, you had the rise of day trading with with the launch of the internet. And and I mean, I remember back in, in the day, I started my career in the tech industry in the, you know, in the mid 90s or late 90s. And, Worked in that for a couple of years before I got in the financial services world, but I had like a, you know, I had like a streamer, like a stock streamer on like my, you know, on my <laughs> desktop back in, you know, yeah. 98 or yeah. 99. CNBC, remember that crew? That, oh, yeah. yeah. They were right. like our friends. <laughs> Absolutely. And so you saw the rise of that and you see, saw people get burned incredibly through, you know, the tech bubble. And then you you saw, you know, day trading seemed like it, it, had moved on. And even over the past six or eight months with GameStop and, and, you know, it's just interesting how, how history tends to repeat itself. The players are different, but it tends to repeat itself. Yep. Human nature never changes, but so, so, but back to the, the question on how we handle it, it, you know, the, how do I invest in my 401k plan or even more broadly, you know, for people that have more complex situations, it is understanding you know, hands-on or hands-off, and then understanding what is their situation. So is this someone that has a really complex situation and maybe a managed account option if they're hand, you know, fall into the 90% that are hands-off mm-hmm. might make more sense. 
Or is it someone that their primary assets are in their 401k and a target date fund with the understanding that, you know, I think one of the biggest misnomers that we've seen employees have is, and it's gotten much better, but it's thinking literally if they pick that fund, that's when they're going to retire. <laughs> and it's like, no, you need to be somewhat aware of the underlying allocation because if you're more conservative, you know, you may want to pick an earlier date if you're less conservative, you know, a later date, but, you know, giving them a little bit of that guidance, but they, they end up able ultimately from the guidance and from understanding, you know, their options and the pros and cons to be able to make an informed decision pretty, pretty easily after that. What I will say is for people that really need a financial advisor, this is where we've had a lot of success in our enterprise businesses, you know, we have a lot of advisors that have clients where they are doing 321 work, right? So they're they're working with employees to help them overall with their wealth management. And if that's an employer-sanctioned benefit, that's something that we embrace because our job, part of our job is to help employees get to the right benefits and and use them the right way, right? Because you can maximize your compensation only so much. You're leaving a lot of money on the table if you're not maximizing your benefits. So, so essentially you're doing the coaching and then when it, when actual advice is needed, you can then funnel them back to, you know, the the plan advisor, assuming they're they're providing fiduciary advice as part of their contractual agreement with the employer. Yeah. Assuming they're sanctioned by the employer as you know, the, the advice provider and as, as essentially an employee benefit. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a really, it's very compatible because, you know, I think a challenge that a lot of advisors have when they go to the workforce is employers are expecting them to work with everyone, right? Because there's this democratization that has really occurred where it's like, we want a level benefit for all employees. Well, it depends on the employer, but you know, often 80, 90 plus percent of employees don't have enough investable assets to be good candidates for the advice and really are dealing with things like, you know, anything from severe debt and, you know, money management challenges to major life events, saving for a wedding, paying, you know, refinancing student loan. I mean, there's a lot, there's so much that goes into financial wellness that, happens before you get to that point where you have investable assets. So we see our job as getting people to that point. And then in a perfect world, you know, the employer has an advisor of record that, you know, can can work with them on money management, estate planning, et cetera. Got it. Got it. That's actually a good segue, I think. Thanks for for, you know, kind of explaining what the model looks like. Because I think a lot of advisors, when they think of financial finesse, just they think of you as a competitor and and that's not what i'm hearing you say is is that most advisors just based on on what what you said like they don't have the size the scale the resources or and quite frankly the model to to reach everyone so i see you as more of a you know more instead of a competitor as being more of a a complement potentially to advisors from that perspective. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. We do not provide advice. Like I said, you know, even as part of our service, it's guidance and coaching. It's not specific advice around this insurance policy. You know, this is the exact way you need to be investing. 
it's not advice. And there is an absolute need for advice. And we're filling a need that has only been relatively recently discovered, which is that, you know, getting people to a place where they are consistently saving and building their wealth. But, you know, at the end of the day, they, you know, they very much need need help managing that wealth once they build it. They have it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good segue. So you, I think, had mentioned earlier on or perhaps before the before the call as we were just chatting that you have this think tank and and you know from from what I know of of you and and of the firm you do a lot of research and analysis and and you came out uh, and I I'll put this in the show notes links to this in the show notes you came out with two really good resources the 2020 financial wellness year in review which is something it looks like that you tracked I don't know how far back it goes, but but the data showed back to 2016. And so being able to show some longitudinal changes over time, you have this financial wellness score that you track. And it's a really comprehensive survey. And you also had a race and financial stress report that looked at uh, financial stress, obviously, between based from a, a, a race perspective, but also overlaid an income perspective on that as well. Uh, which I thought was was really interesting. So can you talk about some of the trends? What was some of the, the trends that you saw out of the data from doing the survey in 2020? Interestingly, it looked like financial wellness scores had had in, in some ways really improved over the prior year. But can you talk a little bit about some of some of that data and some of the, the, the results? And, you know, what are some of the things that were most striking to you when you looked at it? Yeah, absolutely. And I one thing I want to say is the data we have comes from companies, you know, and disproportionately large, right? But even, you know, when we're looking at medium-sized and small companies that we might be working with through an intermediary relationship, it's it's companies that are very committed to their employees to pay for a financial wellness benefit. They typically have, if you go to Brightscope, you're seeing really high 401k scores. So they typically have a very good culture benefits offering, a high level of trust that their employees have. So when you have an an employer that has those characteristics and then offers a financial wellness program over time, you're going to see very significant improvements from those that are engaged in the program, but even improvements from those that aren't because it becomes more part of the culture. So, you know, coworkers share their stories and motivate others and they may read email blasts. I mean, it just, it's in their, it's, it's in their world in a much more consistent way than someone that doesn't have a program. So, so it sounds like in some ways what you're saying is that there could be, it'd be interesting. There's some selection bias because the, the survey respondents are typically ones who are, you know, highly invested and engaged in offering wellness. It'd be interesting if if the survey respondents included companies who, you know, didn't offer a wellness benefit. Yes. Here you would see a much likely you would see the scores you're seeing are representative of a group of employers that actually have made wellness a priority. It'd be interesting to see probably their orders of magnitude better, I would think if you included companies who didn't offer wellness benefits or didn't make wellness a a priority, is that kind of what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. And we also, I mean, we have 
you know, close to 100% client retention rate. So it's also including long-term clients that have been spending a lot of money to tackle this issue. Majority of their employees are using our services on a regular basis. So when you look at what we call return users, you know, you see a lot of improvement. But those, again, are the people that are engaged. And so we've proven financial wellness works. It works especially well in company after company, study after study. I mean, we have tens of millions of data points on knowing that if you are more financially stressed, you know, and in a position where you don't have an emergency fund, you know, a budget, you're really kind of losing control of your debt. Those are actually the employees that improve the most. They have the most urgency. And when you get them in touch with digital and and human-based, I hate the word human, (laughs) it sounds so sterile, but, you know, real certified financial planners that are able to help them, you know, through ongoing financial coaching, they, they, I mean, it's life-changing and they respond incredibly well because you're getting them out of that feeling of, of pain and into a feeling of progress and they never want to go back. So, so that's, that was probably the biggest surprise. And, you know, we've known this for a while, but when I first saw this years ago, I was, I would have said intuitively that you would have more people making progress and investing and in areas where it's more about applying the right principles, making, you know, informed decisions as opposed to changing behavior around saving and borrowing and spending, that sounds a lot harder, right? right? But it's actually the opposite. You get a lift in both areas with ongoing users. But the biggest, the people that, the groups that have benefited most, and you see this in our research, are those that started from the lowest point, the under $60,000 demographic women who we know, you know, we know there's a gender gap. You know, we know there's a gap, you know, a a racial gap with black and brown employees, typically not always, but, you know, having more financial challenges because they're paid less. So you look at all of this and go, my God, in those areas, you know, we're seeing the biggest improvements, which is great. The challenge outside of women who seem to gravitate more towards this service, as I mentioned earlier, is how do you get as an employer how do you get more employees that are struggling kind of into the funnel in the first place, right? Because they may not have email, they work shifts. I mean, it's just a different, the world is not necessarily designed to engage with them. And so it requires a lot more of a, a lot more creativity and a lot more of a commitment you know, and a, a, a really powerful strategy to, to target those that need it most. Right. So it's a very custom, it, it sounds like a very custom by employer based on their demographics as well. Yep. Yep. We're seeing a rise in employee resource groups where, which is kind of cool because they tend to be organized by the employees, not the employers. A community based, if you will, kind of like, you know, community engagement, community meaning within the, for lack of a better description, it's kind of like a, you know, it's like a book club for your finances, if you will, within these employers. Yeah. So what they have is, and it's really been development over the last decade, but 
accelerating over the last few years is there might be a single mom's employee resource group where everyone in that group is a single mom and they bring forth resources and experts to help single moms, right? And so you have that now at most large companies, you know, they have employee resource groups, you know, based on different demographics from race to life situations. And it's really cool to be able to work with these because they're very engaged. It's, it is very much of a community. Word of mouth spreads very, very quickly. And you can really tailor the content and make them part of the process of what are your challenges? How can we help you the most? And this is why I'm still doing this. <laughs> it feels new every time, you know. But, and, and that probably speaks, you know, you said earlier, it was interesting, just kind of as the, the entrepreneur that you are and, and kind of wanting to call it break and rebuild. Is that part of the reason why you've been at this for 22, 21, 22 years? Is that that you're able to get kind of this variety of engagement experience? You're able to kind of like not do the same thing every single time over and over and over again, that would just bore you out of your mind? Absolutely. It is such a rapidly evolving industry. And it's funny to say this 22 years later, but on some levels, we're just at the beginning. When I started in 1999, I mean, even financial education was not really a term. It was two words put together that then had to take three minutes to explain. <laughs> so the evolution in, in employers' understanding and employees in particular are driving a lot of this because we are in a DC world now, right? Where they they don't have the level of benefits they used to have generations ago and have to take care of themselves. There's a lot of pressures on employees, even in a good economy. And student loan debt, obviously major topic, but, you know, looking at having to juggle all these different things, make all these decisions, even selecting benefits. The average large company has 53 benefits that are all independently kind of marketed to employees. Well, how do I know? You know, it's stressful. Open enrollment is, is a stressful process. It should be a good news you get to protect your health care, right? So there's a lot to unpack. And, you know, we're getting as an industry and certainly I think as a company better and better at it and making bigger and bigger strides. Technology also, you know, has a big role to play in terms of reaching a large number of people. And now with AI, being able to reach them personally. But my gosh, to get to to get to the vast majority of a workforce being financially well is quite a challenge and requires, you know, continual innovation and learning from your successes and your failures and, and And really really an an, an iterative process over time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So, you know, while I was still at Greenspring, I ran a a survey about 1900 participants the first year and about 15 or 1600 the second year. But from that first one, 45% of employees admitted to feeling financial stress on a regular basis. What was interesting is people who were stressed were 17 times more likely to feel like the stress had impacted the quality of their work. But the case for the employer to invest in wellness was this, was that people who were financially stressed, again, almost half the workforce that was surveyed, were a third less likely to feel like their employer cared about them. 
They were 56% more likely to believe their employer's benefits were less competitive than similar organizations, which when you're trying to attract talent, that's obviously an issue. And they were 45% less likely to feel confident they were taking full advantage of all the benefits the company offered. And that's one of the things that, you know, what you had said earlier, which is very intriguing and interesting is you're, you know, you're not just focused on the 401k, that, that your coaches understand kind of the entire benefits package for the company. And there's obviously a learning curve because not every company has the, all the exact same benefits, but you're actually able to help. So there's a real ROI for wellness to employers, right? Just in terms of human capital and engaging human capital and being able, you know, everybody says that people are their most important asset, but, but a lot of companies say that and it's nice words on a wall, but they haven't actually aligned, you know, for instance, their, their, their benefits or their resources to really take advantage of that. And wellness is a way to do that, but also to tie together all of these different benefits. If you have an employee that feels like they don't, your, their employer doesn't care about them, or they don't think their benefits are as competitive as other similar organizations, or they're less likely to feel confident they've actually taken full advantage, they're going to be at risk. And one of the most unique things I think about what you do is you're not just focused on the 401k plan or the retirement plan. Your coaches understand the benefits package more holistically and can actually help employees that engage in the coaching services to take full advantage of not just the 401k, but the other benefits their employer has to offer, ultimately strengthening the bond between the employee and the employer. If you weren't pursuing so many other things, I'd want to hire you in sales. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly true. Yes, that's exactly it. Study after study shows the greater the satisfaction and benefits and the greater the usage of the benefits, right? When your 401k balance is higher and your HSA balance is higher, you know, there's a psychological connection. Your employer is your partner in your financial security in those cases. Who wants to leave someone that's been a great partner in their financial security? And if they're a partner in your financial security, they probably are doing a lot of other things, right, with respect to being your partner in your growth and development. So it is something that is a tremendous way to retain talent and even increasingly becoming something to help recruit employees. I mean, we have professional services firms, you know, primarily in consulting and the legal profession that are going to graduate schools. And when they talk about their value proposition as employer, they start with financial wellness and the coaching and, you know, this unlimited access to help you make the best decisions and then talk about a couple of their key benefits. But Mm -hmm. it's really, you know, establishing from the front end what you're going to get from us that you're, you know, potentially not going to get from hopefully what becomes your second choice is this ongoing concierge level, you know, coaching support, you know, to help you make the right decisions. And that over time is going to be the biggest differentiator in your wealth, not the individual benefits themselves. Got it. Got it. What would you say are maybe the top two or three things that employers can do? You know, there, there obviously there is a flow, you guys call it as king, right? When you've got positive cash flow, you've got money that you can allocate to things that are going to be 
more growth oriented over time. If you're living paycheck to paycheck or you're drowning in debt, you know, the reality is that, you know, the money you have is going to have to go to, to pay off those types of things. Or when the washing machine breaks, you're not going to be able to pay for it out of your emergency fund and you're going to have to finance it. And then it's just the kind of this vicious, vicious cycle. What would you say are maybe the top two or three things that employers can do based on your research, you know, to help more employees who are disadvantaged, whether that means from an income standpoint, whether that means you talked about kind of the, you know, the gender gap or from, a, you know, a, a race perspective, what would you say is the top two or three things employers can do to help try to address those issues? Yeah, I think one of the most important things, and you're starting to see more employers do this, is figuring out how to set kind of an emergency savings sidecar vehicle connected with the 401k. It's interesting because you're seeing a lot of products out there that are about payday advances and lending, and some of them are better than others in terms of interest rates. But the problem is you're getting employees addicted to a behavior that ultimately isn't sustainable and it's you know, it's NyQuil, right? It solves this, it addresses the symptoms, but it's not, you know, curing the underlying, you know, illness or illness is a strong word, but the underlying challenge. So, you know, what I love about that concept is, is what it does in terms of the message it sends employees. And, you know, all the studies show and our own included that when an employee has an emergency fund, you know, they're, much more financially resilient, much less likely to spiral into debt. Obviously, if something happens, you know, it really is more important than it may seem in terms of the major first step to financial wellness. I think the other thing is deciding, are you really going to commit to this as a benefit or not? Interestingly enough, I think going in the middle is almost worse than not committing at all. In other words, putting something out there that checks the box and, you know, you can call financial wellness because we're doing a lunch and learn, or, you know, we're offering this one FinTech product that helps with account aggregation. The adoption rates are typically low. And I think employees kind of can tell the difference when you're really, really invested in this. And, you know, it's really about them and personalized to any of their issues and in an ongoing way versus, oh, we're putting this out there and we're putting this out there. And over-marketing your program can actually hurt trust with employees if you're trying to take a little and make it into a lot, you know? So if you don't have the money to do this, if you don't have the employee base that you think really, really needs it, and there are you know, certain employers that are dealing with such high net worth employees in general in certain industries that maybe they don't need financial wellness. Don't do it then. But to halfway do it, you know, it's like being halfway pregnant. It's just, <laughs> it's not a thing. <laughs> right. That's a, that's actually fascinating. That That is interesting. As I said, I'll put in the show notes a link, but I'd encourage anybody listening to go check out some of the research you've done. I, I thought one of the really cool things that that you did was to Kind of characterize people dealing with either dealing with financial stress or not, but this this idea of those who were vulnerable, those who were susceptible, those who were determined, and ultimately 
those who were resilient. And, and it seems like that's really what you're trying to drive to is making people financially resilient, which I assume is, is the ability to withstand something like a COVID-19 financial. Yes, absolutely. Life happens, you know, but you can't budget for the car breaking down or, you know, the, the roof leaking or God, you know, a one once in a century pandemic. Right. But, but we know that life happens. And so, you know, making sure your employees, and it's not just an emergency fund, it's, you know, that they're appropriately insured, you know, that they're not putting themselves at financial risk through their, their savings or, you know, their spending and borrowing habits. And, you know, if you can do that, you're going to, I mean, you'll, you'll still see employees have some degree of financial stress and, and their financial wellness will, will, you know, oscillate a bit based on life circumstances, but it'll be much more bearable than, you know, those employees that really aren't, aren't resilient to begin with. Right. One of the cool things you, you recently rolled out, I just read a press release that you went, that, that a census has adopted is something you call Amy, which is artificial intelligence, motivating employees everywhere. Could you talk a little bit about what that, what that tool, what that resource, what that technology is and, you know, how it's being deployed to help employees? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one thing I will say is I myself have mixed feelings on AI because it is an incredibly powerful tool, but it kind of can be used for good or evil, right? <laughs> so you can use it to really, really target people and maybe get them to do things or spend money on things they might otherwise not do because you, you know, you have that machine learning aspect and you understand or the system understands what's going to motivate them. What we're doing is applying it, you know, very differently from a lot of organizations that are using it to sell and saying, okay, how do we use AI to much better understand what someone needs before they may not even know they need it. What do they need to become more financially well? And and what they need is not just, you know, this black and white, you know, analysis of, oh, they're missing this and this should be the next step. It's textured and nuanced because sometimes having a small win that may not be the most, you know, a financial planner could look at it and say, for example, the highest interest rate first should always be how you pay on your debt. Numbers wise, absolutely. However, if someone does not feel they have a lot of financial autonomy and and efficacy or or sense of self-efficacy, paying down their lowest balance and just getting rid of a card can, can really get them in the right frame of mind to continue the progress. You can apply that as well to everything from understanding life events they're going through and serving up content when they need it to understanding how they learn. Is this someone where working with a coach on a regular basis is going to really make the biggest difference? Or are they more independent like us, entrepreneurial? Hey, I'll call you when I need you. But, you know, I want to do this, you know, myself and feel like, you know, I'm driving. So what Amy does is really at a very deep level, has a conversation. And I would say it's a continuing conversation with an employee digitally that 
really gets to a point of understanding who they are and what they need and what is going to be the best user experience for them based on all of that, because we're all individual. Behavioral finance. In a lot of ways, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a personalization engine in some ways that's using machine learning to, to, to drive personalization on an individual by individual basis in terms of, you know, what they need, but also how they're best or most likely to act on whatever's being presented to them. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, as you can imagine, having these certified financial planners as financial coaches, you know, and this is their livelihood. When I first announced Amy, it was a little bit like, um, (laughs) I need to worry about job security. And the answer is, Absolutely not. The very best thing, the combination of tech and this high touch is what what works the best. And some people are going to gravitate and some of it's situational. If I'm in serious financial problems, I don't want to deal with a computer or an app. I want someone that's, you know, more of a mentor coach therapist, you know, that I can really unload on and work through things and feel like I'm getting the exact right attention and, and handholding for my situation. If I want to make an election around a specific benefit that's relatively straightforward, I, I might not need a, you know, I might not want a coach, right? Like no one calls the, well, very few people <laughs> call the airline reservation number, right? But I did that yesterday. It took me 35 minutes to change a reservation. I was like going crazy. <laughs> but but if we're planning a trip, right, we tend to like sit down with our spouse, you review things. I mean, it's an intensive process. And so, you know, what we see is that it really is the combination that's very individualized and circumstantial. Our fastest growing user base for Phone-based coaching is millennials and Gen Z because they're kind of new to all this and they're looking for that mentorship. So as much as the, you know, the stereotype is, oh, they'll only use an app. Well, absolutely to make quick decisions, they want to use an app. They do not want to, you know, use the phone. However, when it comes to really life decisions, they do want that mentorship and someone they can trust who's on their side and going to celebrate their victories with them and hold them accountable. Right. Yeah. You know, in that survey I, I referenced earlier, what was interesting, and this was kind of shocking to me, was that what I called early career employees that were between 18 and 34, they were, they, based on their, their responses, were most likely to want to reach out to someone in person, you know, to get one-on-one coaching yeah, uh, and advice, which was interesting because we always hear about like these digital natives and they've grown up and all they want to do is, you know, interact through, you know, apps and technology. And the data, I think, based on what you're talking about and, and what I've seen in my own research is it's, it's a- actually different than that. So is Amy something that can only, you know, a census recently announcing the the availability of it to, I think, I don't know if all of their clients are just a subset of their clients. How are you guys deploying that? Are you doing that through this kind of enterprise, like intermediary group of partners you have as well? Yeah. So a census is providing it for every single participant in the census plan, branded plans. And then it's available to their partners and, you know, has some good adoption with 
with several of their, you know, the firms they do the record keeping for, but they're making that investment, which is, is a trend that we're seeing. I hate the term table stakes, but I don't know a better way to say it, that financial wellness, the expectation is more and more that at the record keeper level, at the benefits broker level, even at the wealth management level, that financial wellness is kind of baked in to the offering. And it's a differentiator if you have really good financial wellness, but something, you know, needs to be available, you know, across the board to everyone. And ideally that's, you know, very personalized and very oriented towards changing behavior. In terms of the enterprises, what we're seeing is, I mean, there's a, you know, that whole growth paradigm, right? Between the early adopters and the late adopters and the, you know, the the curve in the middle, where you have a few firms that I expect are going to be making very large investments in financial wellness and will lead the rest of the industry forward. I think these investments will be one of the most, and obviously I have a bias here, but one of the most important things they do now for you know, their future five, 10 plus years from now. And those firms, I think, will be the firms that grow the fastest and win the trust of the participant in a way that, you know, really differentiates them and enables them not to compete as much on fees or plan design exclusively, but outcomes and what what they are able to do to support the financial security of as many participants as possible. Because at the end of the day, that's why all these programs exist, right? That's why you have a retirement plan. That's why you have benefits is to drive financial security for employees. What kind of engagement? And, and then I want to I want to wrap up just kind of talking, building upon what you just what you just mentioned and, and as we wrap, but like what type of engagement rates do you typically see for companies? Because I think historically, one of the challenges with, with wellness, the way it's often delivered is, is utilization rates are pretty low. Like what do you see within your client base in terms of engagement by employees? Yeah, it's so variable. What I will say is a couple of things. When you have a firm that's deeply committed, even when they're really large, and it is harder at the larger company to get percentage-wise just because it's so dispersed. At about the five-year mark, you typically have the majority of employees engaging on an ongoing basis, but it starts considerably lower and it builds. This It's very much a marathon, not a sprint. A lot of services that you roll out to employees have a big launch and then they kind of deteriorate. You can have a nice launch with wellness, but it takes time for employees to be really comfortable. I mean, it's still, there's still a little bit of taboo associated with it. It takes that word of mouth. It takes, you know, really making it part of your culture. And, you know, it takes time to fully integrate it into your benefits ecosystem, into your wellness program, into, you know, new employee orientation, into exits in terms of retirement exits. So, the employers get smarter over time and and start to see more and more opportunities to embed it. And the employees, you know, the word of mouth, I mean, we have so many employers. I can tell you the number of employers that have the ability on their intranet sites for employees to comment on different programs. And, and 
you know, in many cases, these are moderated. (laughs) But there's this kind of almost so internal social media aspect, which, you know, if you have some really, really, you know, happy participants engaged in financial wellness that have made changes and are sharing their stories, it propels things forward. It's almost like going viral within a company. Right, right. Yeah, I tell my kids, I've got four kids, 15 and under, and and I tell them all the time, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. You want to start well, but it's more important to finish well. Absolutely. And it's not how much you, how many times you fall. It's, you know, getting up more times than you fall, right? (laughs) It's not a linear thing. Actually, we'll say over time, you know, it's, it's relatively linear that the programs are much more widely utilized, but in terms of individuals, you know, we all have setbacks, right? Whether it's something that happens to us or just us falling into old habits, but that's part of the process is that's part of being human is just going, okay, what can I learn from this? How to over time, how can I become financially stronger, similar to, to your health or your relationships? You just you want to do better over time. And like you said, it's how you finish. There, there's the resilience aspect that you talk yeah, about. Yeah, exactly. That is really what, what I think it boils down to is, you know, setbacks are part of the human condition, but the ability to rebound or to be resilient, to kind of withstand those things and not, not get knocked out of the game is what's so crucial. Absolutely. Last kind of quick little topic, and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap, but just, you know, obviously you're working with, with, I think, larger, larger plans, at least in the, the kind of the custom or the direct model, not the enterprise. But, you know, what's just your general take? You're seeing a lot of the record keepers now that are getting into wellness and they've got huge technology budgets to spend. You, you know, you saw Empower buy personal capital, you know, a year and a half ago or so for a billion dollars. I just read an article where, Fidelity's hiring like a thousand CFPs. They've made a huge investment in tech. You know, you've got some of these providers that that are like in a census saying, hey, we're going to partner with, you know, financial finesse to be able to kind of deliver this, this experience. And then you've got other record keepers who, you know, are trying to own, they've kind of been locked out, I'd say, over the past 10 or 15 years They've been locked out from the asset management game that was so lucrative for so long, but this move towards passive investing and the elimination of revenue sharing, and they've kind of gotten locked out. And you're seeing a lot of larger record keepers now that are trying to get back in the game through wellness and to own really the participant experience, which can create some challenges if you know they're using it really as kind of a beachhead to cross-sell other products, other services. What's your take on just kind of how the industry is evolving from that that perspective? And, you know, what would you, you know, what would you tell, you know, advisors to be on the lookout for and employers as well when it comes to kind of larger record keepers that are are trying to kind of build these in-house solutions? Yeah, I think this is where it comes back to defining what financial wellness is, both from an individual perspective as well as as an, you know, something that employers, whether through record keepers, benefits consultants, firms like ours can offer. And, and, you know, we're seeing, I mean, really across the board, and it's happening quite quickly, the industry in terms of HR and benefits professionals really galvanizing around this concept of financial wellness is a separate industry. And it is a, 
an industry that's best delivered without conflicts of interest, focused on the needs of the participant backwards, as opposed to having employees be a sales channel. So, you know, I think what I love about a census is, as you know, they're completely independent. They don't have proprietary funds. You know, they're, they're really, you know, their value is in their independence. And I think, you know, through the partnership with Financial Finesse, they're very aligned with where HR and benefits is going, which is we don't want these conflicts of interest. We don't want the liability associated with cross-selling or recommending or channeling employees into products and services, you know, with affiliates where you're getting commissions, but maybe that isn't the best product or service for the employee and, you know, the legal implications that could happen. So, I mean, obviously, again, I have, I'm not unbiased about unbiased financial wellness. (laughs) I obviously have a very strong perspective, which is why I started this company. But, you know, I, I really think it does need to be delivered in a way that, you know, is conflict free. Now you are seeing a lot of firms kind of starting to realize this and figuring out how do we combine maybe what we're doing with advice with financial wellness in a way that that works. And so we completely understand why advisors or record keepers, you know, but especially advisors would want to own the participant experience. And in many cases, you know, what we're doing is kind of an intel inside strategy where they're leveraging our platform, they're leveraging Amy and our coaching line, but folding that into their overall model. So it's it's still their program powered by financial finesse, which, you know, I think is is a win for for everyone. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's a I think that's a great description. I love the Intel inside kind of model, which you become more of a platform at that at that point, you know, which is yes. probably where you're seeing the growth on the enterprise channel that you guys have developed over the past few years. Last two questions. Number one, I ask this generally of everybody. The whole purpose of this podcast is to make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. What would be your single best piece of advice for ERISA plan fiduciaries that are thinking about wellness? It is seeing it as part of the service offering, part of the considerations. When when you're a fiduciary, you're at the end of the day, the spirit is to operate, obviously, in the best interest of the participants. This is a big missing piece of the puzzle. Providing financial wellness the right way is absolutely in the best interest of the participants. And so I think there's a shift going on that we'll only see accelerating where you should have a financial wellness strategy, whether that is a partnership you have or several partnerships with different firms, or you're operating as the consultant, bringing on the right financial wellness firm for the employer, or it's your offering powered by a financial finesse or, or another firm with similar capabilities. It's, it has to be much more part of the process as opposed to, oh, this employer is inquiring about it. So I'm going to add it because they seem to be very invested in it they should be bringing financial wellness to the attention of employers rather than waiting for employers to say, you know, what are you doing in this area? Great advice. And where can people go to connect with you or follow you or see what you're up to or what financial finesse is up to? (laughs) 
any of our social media linked it. I don't, I don't know by hand all of our, our different handles, but you know, we're on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. You can reach out to info at financialfinesse.com. And, you know, I actually to this day get all of those emails. And you can certainly go to financialfinesse.com. And then, of course, I know there's going to be show notes as well. Yeah, and we'll make sure, I'll make sure to put all the all those uh, different kind of resources for people to connect with you that want to learn more. So we extended our time a little bit, but it's <laughs> been an awesome discussion. And I would just say that I love the story of financial finesse. I love what you guys are doing. And, and you know, I wish you continued success and just really appreciate you spending time with me today. And I know the audience will take a lot away from it. Absolutely. It was fun. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Liz Davidson from Financial Finesse. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryu.com. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show, and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast. <music>